Hey everyone, welcome to episode 103 of the MGG Grindcast. This is what, like our third live streamed episode yep. so far? Yeah. Alright. We've had four episodes since then, but one of them was a set review. Yeah. We, you know, we didn't we didn't want to live stream that one. <laughs> no. Also was in San Diego, which would have made it yes. not the easiest in the world. So True. killing a couple of birds with one non-live streamed stone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Chris Castor-Apple, here as always with Collins Mullen. How's it going, Collins? Great. You are fresh off of SCG Worcester. Yeah, we just, just came back from Worcester. It was a uh, quite a long trip, but we made it. <laughs> Massachusetts is not <laughs> close. Yes, it, it was not close. We were lucky enough to be able to break up the drive though on the way there, and we did end up one-shotting it on the way back, but, Oof. you know. Yeah. Where did you stay on the way there? Uh, we stayed with Niraj. Oh, cool, yeah. cool. Uh, gotcha. We were able to stay with him uh, at his place. It was about halfway there. Gotcha. Um, so, that was solid. Yeah. Decent. Yeah, I uh, I really screwed up. We've got uh, SEG Philly this weekend. Yep. And I saw, I, you know, my thing that I'm doing now is I'm trying to drive up with y'all and then yep. fly back on Sunday evening. Right. Basically buying a night's sleep for like <laughs> $150 to $200 or so. Which, well, that's the ideal range at yeah. least. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I saw the plane tickets yesterday, just didn't get them because I was doing other stuff and now they are $400 so uh, I guess I'm going to be very bad at my job on Monday that's how it goes oh, yeah well. that's what the rest of us do so <laughs> <laughs> yeah Ugh. I mean maybe I'll maybe I'll just be sick I mean maybe I will literally be sick after that who knows I don't I don't know how much of this it's I it's not that bad deal with anymore. it's gonna be all right you're not 31 years old <laughs> fair so before we get too into it, definitely want to thank our patrons. Really appreciate the support of all of our patrons. Want to thank our new patrons. We just got Michael this week. Really appreciate it. I have finally put the updates in to Patreon itself. So if you want to see what all of the current rewards for each tier are, head over to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast and you can see all that. I've uh, got a link to the picture of the enamel pins that we've ordered. Uh, they should be here sometime this week and going to start sending them out. They're they're pretty cool. Yeah, I've seen a photo. It's uh, I'm excited. Yeah. I, I'll have one. I, yeah. you, you might have more than one even oh, if you want all right. to. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to get one for your playmat or your backpack or, you know, whatever. Also, one thing that I do want to do is if I see you in person just randomly and you are rocking some MTG Grindcast swag, I'm going to give you a pack of like whatever... I have on me. So I just cool. like really want to see some MTG Grandcast stuff in the wild. Uh, this does not apply to you. I'm sorry, Colin. Dang it. <laughs> I'm always looking for things it that I can really... <laughs> I can't just give you a packet every tournament we get to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we've got rewards for every tier. We've got some cool stuff coming. All announced. I guess it's not like future stuff. You're about to start writing your testing updates and that sort of thing. Indeed. Yeah, and we are about to start reaching out to people in that $10 tier about those one-on-one -on -one hangout sessions, coaching, whatever you want to make of the time. So right. should be really fun. I'm pretty excited. Yeah. Cool. So we always like to start with a keeper mole. Yes. We've kind of gotten off that because we've had some two special episodes. We've got one. Oh, Dubes is here. Great. Well, we're going to do your keeper mall. So. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Excellent timing. So um, this is a dredge keeper mall. Okay. So I know we're going to talk a lot about standard, but this one was kind of interesting I'm and handy. down for a little so. dredge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and really like focuses in, because this is a mall to five with the London Mulligan rule okay. in modern. Okay. So a lot to consider here. Uh, yeah. It's not going to be our normal you know, yes or no, we have some options to choose from. Yeah, I, this segment is about to go, you know, this might be crazy. like the whole show most episodes, honestly. Because <laughs> yeah. once we get to like what you put back and... Sure. Yeah. Uh, so this is game three on the play. Okay. He says, uh, so playing versus Vizier combo. In game two, he says the only graveyard, he didn't see any hard graveyard hate. Um, the only like sideboard cards that he saw was like burnt and forge tender to, for a conflagrate. Okay. Um, but he didn't doesn't believe they're playing any rest in pieces or anything like yeah. that. Typically their plan is to kill you before anything else happens. Yep. So that makes yep. sense. Um, and so we've mulliganed to five. Yep. But I'm going to tell you seven cards because that's how the London mulligan works. Okay. I believe they've kept seven because he doesn't say they've kept anything else. So we've got a Bloodstained Mire as our only land. 
uh, Life from the Loam, Cathartic Reunion, Dark Blast, Conflagrate, Narcamoeba, and a Hogak that I think we're trying out uh, here. Hogak. Yeah. Okay. So one more time for me. So one land. One land. Bloodstained Mire. Bloodstained Mire. Uh, our dredgers are Life from the Loam and Dark Blast. Okay. We've got a Cathartic Reunion, a Conflagrate, a Narcamoeba, and a Hogak. So, right off the bat, we have one card that we're putting... Well, I guess we start with Keeper Mall. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, we know, at least the Narc right. we know, like, this is already, like, that's an easy put back. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. For our determination. But, right. But, yeah. So, I mean, like, the crux here is that we've got one land, we've got kind of weak dredgers, mm-hmm. we don't have act- faithless looting to make this a snap keep. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's kind of like, how bad is going to four with the London Mulligan? Right. I, I have never played Dredge with the London Mulligan, right. so my, my takes here are going to be a little, you know, more theory than anything else. Yeah. Going to four is probably pretty fine with Dredge, because mm-hmm. you can just keep, you know, ideally two lands, a Dredger, and a looting effect, and yep. then you're off to the races. Yeah. This hand, though, I think that we're on the draw or play. We're on the play. Okay. And we don't get yeah. a scry anymore, so, right. like, we've really, this really is a one-land hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm going to lean towards keeping it. Okay. Because of the power of Dark Blast. Mm. I think that because you have a, a interactive piece, mm-hmm. uh, you can definitely disrupt a lot of what they're doing. The problem is that Dark Blast does not really disrupt the combo too much. Right. Because if they lead with a Devoted Druid and then they play their Razier, you know, they're going to have priority to make right. infinite mana. And there's no disrupting that once both pieces are on the table. Right. They just, you know, can respond and untap and go again. Yeah. You need a sudden shock is right. the only the only answer to the assembled combo <laughs> yeah yeah so i'm definitely leaning towards keeping it the other issue though is that so we have a cathartic reunion in our hand we do okay so if we do hit a land right then we discard um, two dredgers yeah and get to start going right which is pretty nice so that upside is there yeah wow this hand's really close it is isn't it yeah i uh yeah i would say that i would keep i would keep land go I would, I would bottom the... The Narcomoeba, uh, certainly, and then... The Narcomoeba and the Hogak. And the Hogak. Are okay. the two, like, slow cards that, like, don't really do much. Right, right. And, you know, we're trying to start dredging a lot, and hopefully we just hit the Hogak in the graveyard at that sure. point, if that's yeah. our plan. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of between Conflagrate and mm-hmm. um, and Hogak for me sure. on the other card to bottom, uh, because, you know, those are, like, both just like payoff cards that we need need to get into the graveyard anyways. And I think that Conflagrate just has a higher upside. Right. Right. Because if they kept like a, you know, a triple elves hand or something like that, yeah. then we might just be able to get them here. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, I would definitely, I would definitely bottom the Hogak and the Narcomoeba, but I think it is close. And I actually don't know if it's right that much better to keep this than to Mulligan again. Yeah. And I, I feel like because at least for me, my, and and actually, I probably want to transition into asking about the London Mulligan at Worcester, sure. Like immediately after this, yeah. Uh, but my heuristics are not adjusted for the London Mulligan in any way whatsoever. Right. Like I've been playing with it on Arena and Moto, but I still like I'm, that's not the like paradigm that I'm working in yet. <laughs> so I feel like anything that I feel like is close, I really should just be mulliganing at this point. You yeah. know, if I'm even considering, like I don't know if this is great. I should be at least pushing myself more towards mulliganing, and then I can probably come back a little bit. Because my natural inclination is, like, I want to keep more cards anyways, mm-hmm. so I've, I've needed to fight that for a while. And so now this is the perfect opportunity to completely reset yeah. my my keeper mull metrics a right. little bit. Yeah, and knowing your tendencies and, like, fighting against them a little bit mm-hmm. is definitely a good, like, tiebreaker, like, mentally, when you have to make a decision in a tournament. Just being like... Normally, I love attacking, and I think it's really close here, so I probably shouldn't attack. Right. Right. If, if we're all generally going to be more inclined to keep hands because we're used to the old mulligan way, mm-hmm. it might be true that for the really close ones, we should just ship it back. Yeah. And especially during testing, like if this were a non... It doesn't change what's the right thing to do, but during testing, a lot of your focus is on learning rather than on winning. Yeah. And I think right now... An important thing to learn is like how small of hands can different decks function with under the London Mulligan sure. and still be successful. Yeah. So yeah, and just theory based, I think that you can probably go to four or three with Dredge and yeah. be fine. You know, depending on how fast you need to be or whatever. But no, I, I I think that's completely right. Yeah. 
And kind of the more that we've talked about it, the more I want to mulligan this hand. Yeah. Let's just see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Give me seven cards. Let right. me pick four of them. Yeah, and just right. Get you. You, you only need four, yeah. you know. Because um, the Faithless Looting that you keep could turn into anything. Oh, yeah. So. Hopefully a lot of things. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, yeah. yeah, I don't know what exactly is the right thing, but mm-hmm. I think that that discussion is more important than, like, coming to a particular answer on it. Sure. All right, so tell me about Worcester, and t- let's start. Like, how did the London Mulligan feel in paper in standard? Amazing. Okay. Yes. Incredible. I loved it. And I'm so excited that this is going to be magic moving forward. The games are more consistent mm-hmm. in how they play out, because people are mulliganing towards the openers that they know that their deck needs to operate. Mm-hmm. So the first couple of turns of each match are usually pretty similar. A little bit scripted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the games are, you know, don't hear that and be like, oh no, magic's the same every time. Because right. the games are completely different every time, like always. Mm-hmm. But there's just so few number of non-games that happen now. Okay. Um, right, because I mean, when you build a deck, right, you only have like two or three openers designed into the deck, really. Yeah. And this is just allowing that to happen it's not like great variation to the games if it's like, well, yeah, so I've got my opener where I go land or elves into three drop. I've got my opener where I go tap land into two drop. And then I've got my openers where like my lands don't work and I don't cast spells until turn four. Yeah. Like that last one doesn't really make the like yeah. set of games you can play better. And, and you know, it's not like we, it's not like you're going to have a land or elf every game, mm-hmm. but you are going to be much more consistent in like having a functional opener in your games so that the more of the games are leading into the late game because no opener is like inherently better than anything else right now i don't think unless well there's a deck <laughs> there's a deck that i'm going to be pretty excited to talk about about standard that does have some busted openers yeah, yeah. i'm excited to hear about this should I spoil it or should we just wait <laughs> well i have a section where we're talking about decks that okay, we're like great. pumped about or yeah. have interesting places in we'll the, keep it to the mulligan for now yeah Okay. Um, um, but yeah, I, I you know it's just such a huge variance reduction, and also I would even go as far as to say that I think that it gives more skilled players a bigger advantage mm-hmm. um, because just mulliganing, the bottom is hard. Mulliganing, yeah, mulliganing with the London Mulligan rule is you know the the more skilled players are faster to recognize that you just need to mulligan more aggressively, mm-hmm. and I think that you know some players who don't understand that are just going to keep sevens that they would normally keep and yeah. it's just not going to be quite as good so we felt like we had a, a, a decent edge from that at the tournament it was that we you know we were practiced with the london mulligan and granted we were playing a deck that got you know a pretty big bonus from the london mulligan as well <laughs> we were playing nexus okay and you know combo decks love as much selection it's as true. they can get so <laughs> but yeah i i think it's pretty skill intensive mm-hmm. and it just leads to less non-games. And we will see how this plays out. You know, we already saw it in paper, you know, a Pro Tour in Modern, but that Pro Tour had different things going with it with known deck lists and that sort of yeah. thing. So, uh, and this coming weekend is team, so that'll probably disguise some of what is going on with the London Mulligan as well. But, you know, over the next couple of weeks, we are going to play a lot of Modern and older formats with the London Mulligan. So we will see how it plays out in... Formats where you don't also kind of want four or five, six lands in play may have a different effect, but we'll see. Yeah. So the open itself. So just to start off with, I mean, you guys, I was gone. I feel a little behind in the standard format. I know everybody that I've talked to is like, yeah, I'm lost in the standard format <laughs> anyways, but I yeah. really don't have well, a lot of context Well, let me be your, your beacon of light because Correct. I played a lot of the standard. I, for, I need for, it. For, yeah. I guess I don't need it because I think I'm playing modern this weekend, but I would appreciate Maybe it. Maybe somebody listening needs it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll be a stand-in for that person. Great. The standard format is really fun. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. It's pretty diverse. There's not really a consensus best deck, mm-hmm. not even close. People are still, like, you know, brewing new decks even after this weekend. Right. That's always fun. <laughs> for sure. The, uh, yeah. And so, right. So, so tell me about Nexus. Like, what is that? What was the metagame going into this tournament that you thought that, okay, Nexus is the choice? And I think it probably was correct because that w- it was the most have the most represented deck in day two had a really good conversion rate. Yep. So, you know, what, what brought us there? So we played Nexus because we noticed that leading into the tournament, there were a bunch of mid-range decks mm-hmm. that were blue-green based. Sure. And the blue-green decks that were mid-rangey, their answer to Nexus was counterspells. Mm-hmm. 
And we, everybody in Lotus Box was super excited for Veil of Summer. <laughs> Veil of Summer is crazy strong, especially against, you know, any sort of like counterspell strategy. Yeah. And, you know, we also knew that Mono Blue was going to be reasonably well represented. You know, a lot of people were talking about Mono Blue, and Mono Blue traditionally is a pretty bad matchup for Nexus. And I wouldn't even go as far to say that we're like a heavy favorite by any means, mm -hmm. but the inclusion of Veil of Summer and the new Ceratops mm -hmm. made our post board games against Mono Blue pretty strong. Right. So, yeah, I mean, you end up with like three cards that matter, which are yeah. like Ceratops, Veil, and Blast Zone, and like. Those yeah. are those are the cards in the matchup that make a difference. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, just having the one mana counterspell, like all you really need to do to win that matchup is resolve the wilderness reclamation. Veil is wild. Yeah. Like Dispel is a great sideboard card. Yeah, but how about Dispel that draws a card? And does other things? Or you can why? just cycle it. <laughs> like why? <laughs> Yeah, Veil was a huge MVP for us. We, you know, we were excited to have it against Mono Blue. Mm -hmm. We were excited to have it against Vampires mm -hmm. because their way to beat us was to have a despark for our Wilderness Reclamation. Yeah, and it just Veil also counterdraws. <laughs> yeah, which is hilarious. It's wild that it stops the disenchant that they're playing. Right. Well, yeah, it, it shouldn't. It's really not supposed to do that. Yeah. Feather had a pretty good plan against us, though. They brought in a bunch of what's the one mana disenchant? Demystify. Demystifies. Yeah. 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 But generally, our matchup was overall pretty favored against Feather, so we weren't right. really worried about Because they that. really are like a mid-rangey card advantage creature deck. Yeah. They have some like pretty... They can have some kind of explosive starts, but they're not that fast. Yeah. They're not mono-red. So. Right. Those were the kind of the major factors. Like we, we brought the deck so that we would beat up on the majority of the field, which we thought was going to be just like mid-rangey stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, anything where a fog is the same as a time walk... You know, Nexus is just a huge favorite. Right. Um, and I mean, coming out of the arena format where it is Risen Reef, the format, you yeah. know, Nexus is just right. yeah. the and, end game you and want. And the Risen Reef decks are exactly the kinds of decks we wanted to beat up on. Yeah, sure. that makes sense. So how did that play out? Uh, pretty well. I was the only person who did not make day two uh, on our team. <laughs> Rip. Yeah. Uh, uh, but everybody else cashed. We had two in top 16 and two in top 32... I think okay. uh, was the breakdown. Oh, uh, Rossum also didn't make day two. Okay, um, gotcha. But Rossum didn't play Nexus, so I didn't... So D doesn't count for this particular... Yeah, not yeah. this specific statistic. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I saw Nexus, the most played deck in day two. I believe 12 or 13 of the day two decks were Nexus. Mm -hmm. And like a substantial proportion of those are Team Lotus Box folks. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, and maybe we ended up skewing those numbers a little bit. Because you put a bunch of competent players yeah. into the tournament with the same deck. Yeah. And... yeah. You know, competent players with buys that are just a favorite to make day Sure. Two. Yeah, yeah. Who you know, who knows about that? But yeah, I was I was happy with it and, and this the squad was happy with it. I ended up playing a different deck though in the standard classic the mm -hmm. next day. I switched over to Feather. Yeah. For a couple of reasons. Not straight Boros Feather. Not Boros Naya. Feather. Okay. Not Naya. I think Naya is just a little too cute and too prone to having draws that clunk out. If the mana were free, I, I'd be sure. okay with Naya, but the yeah. mana is very much not no, free. It's not. And, you know, the cleaner a mana base can get, especially in standard, can make the world a difference. Feather costs white, white, red or whatever. White, so. white, red. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty specific. Yeah. Boy, the temple is such a big addition to that deck. Oh, oh. I, <laughs> The feather decks were playing just like a guild gate before. Yeah. <laughs> and now it scries. Alright, sorry, keep going. Tell me about tell me about Feather. So why why was this your choice for the classic and you know what what were you, what were you trying to do with it? So Feather I think that the main reason I wanted to switch was because I got to see like what the metagame breakdown at the tournament was like. Mm -hmm. So I had a much better understanding of what the decks were gonna be in the standard classic. Mm -hmm. Like I knew, you know, I was able to like see all of the players who didn't quite make day two and like had a pretty good idea of what decks people were going to play the next day. Mm -hmm. uh, and Feather just felt like it was pretty well positioned against those decks. So what were those decks? What does Feather beat up on? Feather does a really good job beating up on the teamer mid-range strategies. Okay. If you ever like have a Feather, they just can't beat that because mm -hmm. you're just going to go over to the top of whatever they're doing. And also, the deck that I played was based on Oliver Tomiko's list that he ended up making the top eight of, and he had the main deck inclusion of the Goblin Rabble Master card. Legion War Boss. Le yeah, Legion War Boss. And that card was also really well positioned against a lot of stuff. Like, you know, the like 
slower mid-rangey control decks like Esper, you know, even against like stuff like Nexus, that card did a really good job, you know, facing against. And if you can never combine it with God's Willing, it's right. <laughs> and we had a resurgence of, well, a resurgence of Mono Blue and sort of the coming out party for the Simic Flash decks. True. And both of those are decks that have very little removal. Yeah. So yeah, and those yeah, that was another big selling point for Feathers because both of those matchups are favored for Feather. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's nice. When I've played Feather, it's felt like the matchups that I really want to play against are the matchups where Reckless Rage is good. Yeah. And any time Reckless Rage is good, whenever you draw it, you usually right. win. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and also Feather got a huge bonus from the London Mulligan. Uh, you just get to... Because uh, the, deck, the, the deck is named after a card. Yeah, the deck is named after a card, so you get to find that card. Yeah. And also, just like, it's a heroic deck, right? And reason number three is, is why I switched is that I just love heroic strategies. I was going to say, this does <laughs> yeah. suit your play style a little I more than it. Nexus. I love it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, heroic decks are great, and they benefit a lot from the London Mulligan role. Mm-hmm. Just being able to better sculpt your mulligans into having specifically what you need, like, you know, having a good mix of creatures and spells. Right. And uh, you get rid important. of your second God's Willing or whatever. Sure. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, I can definitely see that. But there were there were definitely times, especially post-board, where I knew, like, exactly what I needed, where I mulliganed pretty aggressively. For example, I played against Nexus in the tournament, and it was game three, and I was on the play, and I looked at my seven, and it was like a turn five kill. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it's probably not going to work. So I mulliganed it. Mm-hmm. And then my n- my next seven was also a like, medium turn five kill. And I was like, this deck can do better than this. And I mulliganed again. And then my five had like a, it had a turn five kill, but it also had a demystify. Great. And, you know, yeah. they're just not going to be able time to beat that. for one mana. Right. So. so, you know, I was able to like find a really fast draw that had the disruption that I needed. And then, you know, I ended up drawing insane and killing him on turn four. But <laughs> <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was just being able to mulligan like that yeah. was really strong. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And I, I think that the players who are willing to do this, mm-hmm. especially because it's, it's not just when you are playing a linear deck that you should be mulliganing really aggressively. But I think that's really smart. You're playing against a linear deck that has very specific weaknesses that you can exploit. Yeah. And I just know exactly how the games are going to play out, mm-hmm. right? Like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be able to apply pressure. And then starting on turn four, my best draws are going to make them have to fog every turn starting on turn four. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, if I can set that up and then also have a disruptive piece, they just can't win. Really. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And. I think going forward, because if it's like that in standard with your mid-range creature deck against the like kind of clunky combo deck, mm-hmm. like this rule rewards people who know the format, know the matchups and how the games play out and are willing to mulligan to make what they want to happen, happen. Yep. Cool. So sh- can we talk about the rise of Mono Blue after being pretty dead for a while? And yep. then also the Simic Flash deck, uh, you know. It operates differently, but I think they sort of exist on the same spectrum. Like, they have a similar matchup profile and, yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah, the Simic Flash deck was... I think it was more popular than it was good. It got a lot of publicity. I think Austin Collins created it, and then Martin Yuza picked it up mm-hmm. and did reasonably well with it on stream or something. And if that happens and it's popular enough and it gets enough eyes, right. people just, you know... When it's a new thing, especially. Yeah. Right. So a lot of people picked it up. A mm-hmm. lot of people played it. You know, it, it it put up some, like, middling finishes. Right. I mean, it was the second most represented deck on day two. Mm-hmm. But after that, uh, I don't yeah. believe it It just had... didn't convert. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I And I think that was due to the fact that it was a very popular archetype in day mm-hmm. one. Very popular archetype in day one. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that deck everywhere. My personal perspective is that it's just not good <laughs> it definitely feels um, i will say yeah. that brineborn cutthroat is a way better magic that card, card is than phenomenal I thought yeah it would and be. if you if you can guarantee drawing like one to two of those in your top like 13 cards you know it's gonna be great it's the best card like yeah like with with unsummoned too like it's right. just very easy to like double or triple spell on their turn and now your your cutthroat is just like a it's like a flash woolly thoctor or whatever yeah. it's really good it's really big yeah it gets huge for sure yeah, and I think that that is another reason why so many people like probably ended up playing it at the tournament because uh, you know if you if you run well with it, mm-hmm. it feels unbeatable. Right. 
Um, because, you know, you just, like, have it, have everything every turn, and you, like, have a counterspell and a flash guy in your hand, and you feel like you're on top of the world and have all your bases covered. Mm -hmm. But in my experience, there's just, like, sometimes you can get really far ahead, but if you don't, like, continue to draw disruption Mm -hmm. after you, like, use up the counterspells in your hand, if your opponent just starts jamming, Gotcha. Then what you're doing doesn't really make up for the fact that sometimes you know it just doesn't work out as well. Right. Um, and that's that's the difference between a deck with Curious Obsession that's trying mm-hmm. to play this fish plan and a deck without uh, yeah. an engine like Curious right. Obsession. And I really do think that Curious Obsession is the card that you know is the glue that holds Mono Blue together. If Mo- if Mono Blue is just like a bunch of small creatures and counterspells, Trash. it would be really unplayable. Yeah. And I think that that is what this blue green flash deck is. Right. It's medium creatures yeah. and counterspells. Right. So, you know, yeah. it's not 1/1 flyers, but, but Swift just, Warden is yeah. not going to is yeah. not going to take over any battlefields. Oh, yeah. It's not. Um and that deck just doesn't have any card velocity. Mm-hmm. You just like, you know, you have what you draw and then that's kind of it. You got your ops, but yeah, but the initialists aren't playing opt. That uh, it has to play opt. The deck cannot not play opt. It's just <laughs> let's pull up some of these lists. I know, it's oh, but, just not but, there. but and no, and you're right. It's that was one of the things that we noticed about these decks. And if you're trying to flash, you got to put the four ops in your deck. Yeah. just be responsible. Right. And the other card that I suggest if people want to play this deck is Growth Spiral. Being able to uh, deploy your mana is a really important part of these flash decks because. The if you ever get stuck on mana and find yourself having to cast only one spell a turn as this like tempo-y deck, mm-hmm. it's just not going to work because you know your opponent is going to be able to develop their mana base and then they can start double spelling. Yeah, and if your plan is to counter their spells, you're just dead in the water at that point. Sure. Does Gross Spiral really help? Like, what's the land count in these decks? Can they really? It's probably not high enough. Yeah, may need to. I mean, the the decks may need like a pretty reasonable adjustment to. Yeah, to be in a place where they're actually competing. Yeah. Um, right. Gotcha. Cool. Well, but that's yeah. my thoughts on Blue-Green Flash. Yeah, I mean, I really was not super into the concept of the deck either. It just has a lot of cards that I don't, like... You gotta draw your cards in, like, pretty much just the right combination, and you squeak stuff out. I yeah. mean, the... And the, the Lon- Night- London helps with the, that as well. Right. But. Definitely does. And Nightpack Ambusher... Does do a good job of mm-hmm. making up for oh yeah some some if not curious stuff. possession is the glue of mono blue that card is the glue for blue green flash right. because that card on its own can just win a game yep yeah if my hand is like that card and all counter spells I'm feeling great <laughs> yeah yeah for sure but mono blue really feels like if you're trying to play this this fish plan mm-hmm. where mono blue is at right now it it got a lot of cards in M twenty. Yeah, and we were maybe a little dismissive of it because it hasn't been good in a while. Teferi is so good against it, and Shifting Ceratops is kind of is pretty lights out against it as long as you're playing other magic cards at the same time. Yes, but it seemed to match up pretty well against a lot of these green decks, Nexus included. Yeah, and the new cards are really good in it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, its plan works out pretty well against these slower strategies. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that it got to beat up on a lot of these mid-range decks as well. Mm-hmm. Just like any deck that does a lot of development in the early turns, and I think that Risen Reef definitely qualifies as that. You know, yeah. it's, it's not on its own adding to the board, really. It's just giving you advantage, like, card-wise. And if your opponent is, like, beating you down in the air while you're trying to do all that stuff, it mm-hmm. can be rough. Yeah, I think that Mono Blue is a pretty solid option for this tournament. For yeah, sure. yeah. Going forward... How are we feeling? So, I mean, congratulations to Aaron for winning the tournament. Brought Mono Red. And if it weren't for Mono Red winning the tournament, I would say, like, it looks like it's time to play some Mono Red in Standard (laughs) right now. Yeah. Uh, Because, like, all of these decks just kind of, like, lose pretty badly to Mono Red. They do. Kind of. I don't know. It's it's this weird thing because I've been hearing a lot of perspectives on Mono Red. Mm -hmm. And from what I see in the metagame, it looks on paper like Mono Red should be decent yeah but every time i like either test mono red myself or talk to a teammate who's like tried it out or like even just like listen to the general consensus of like is mono red good everybody thinks it's really bad okay which i don't know well i mean this is this is not like super surprising to me because every time mono red has been really good i've played it and been like i hate this deck (laughs) yeah so (laughs) yeah no for sure yeah i've definitely had that experience with it (laughs) 
But I've also had the other experience with it. So yeah, it, you know, it's true. <laughs> it's hit or miss. Yeah, but I mean that that open where you got second, I definitely I died in round five. So you know, <laughs> yep, yeah. slightly different experiences. Yep, hit or miss for sure. Um, yeah, I I don't know. Um, I think that Mono Red will be more respected now because it won the open, mm-hmm. and then that's a problem. And for Mono Red. that on top of the fact that I you know I'm actually a little concerned about mono red at these tournaments mono red just like doesn't beat the mid-range decks anymore mm-hmm. um well and if people are choosing to respect mono red you don't have to do anything fancy you don't have to change the composition of your deck you just need to put three cerulean drakes in your sideboard. right yeah it's easy right and you know that card makes it pretty difficult for mono red yeah yeah also like that sideboard plan beats the New innovation, uh, Aaron was running, rather than main deck experimental frenzies, went down to one frenzy and was running Chandra's Spitfire, yeah. a card that I just completely overlooked in the yeah. M20. Because we've had it before. Yeah. It wasn't good in standard last time it was printed. Yeah. I'm not sold on it still. Yeah. I don't think it's that great. But, you know, Aaron won with it, so that's got to be, uh, you know, checking the other column. I mean, it's just one of those... Super high floor, super low, or super high ceiling, super low floor yep. cards. Like, right. sometimes it attacks for seven on turn four and your opponent dies. Oh, yeah, for sure. Sometimes it, like, gets bounced by Teferi when Teferi's not good against any of your other cards or, yeah. you know. So, yeah, I don't know. Definitely worth trying if you are a mono-red person. But, yeah, I mean, the fact that Aaron won the tournament, to me, signals that people will put the drakes back in their sideboards where they were missing them yep. and right maybe not a great choice um yeah that's what i'm thinking as well for sure i mean if you're playing other tournaments like outside of the series then that may not be the case but since we're specifically talking about the scg tournament a week after this happened where yeah. everybody pays attention to these things yeah everybody everybody's got some eyes on it all so. for sure yeah for sure Oh, I guess we should mention i only like sort of paid attention to this because i just missed most of this but the whole like everybody yelling about a couple of miscues that Aaron had and like yeah. saying, okay, number one, like it's just in the rules of magic that cheating requires intent. So if you like accidentally do some stuff, even if it were way more egregious stuff than what Aaron did. Yeah. If it's not on purpose, it's literally not cheating. It cannot be cheating. Also the stuff. So, so Aaron, I think, I don't remember exactly what happened on camera. I know at least like once in the tournament, she cast uh, a spell or two from her hand when she had Experimental Frenzy in play. And then... I think it was just, it was just, from what I saw, it was just that one clip where Aaron is going off with an Experimental Frenzy. Mm -hmm. And I think like two times in that sequence, she casts a Light of the Sage from her hand. Okay. But before... And I, I looked at that, I watched that video, like, on the car ride home, because, you know, yeah, everybody, talking everybody about was it. talking about it, and I was like, all right, let's take a look. I looked at the board state, bef- like, at the very beginning of the video, before any of this happened. And she couldn't lose. Zero percent to lose. Yeah. Yeah. Just zero percent to lose. So, you know. Yeah, running the furious on-camera right. cheat when you're 100% yeah. <laughs> seems like pretty low EV. Right. Like, there, and p- people were talking about it, and they were like, there's a Lyra on the other side of the board. Like, maybe she felt like she needed to go. Experimental Frenzy beats Lyra. So many times. On board already, there were there was a Fanatical Firebrand and two of the new two-mana... Ember Holler. Yeah, two Ember Holler. So already on board, there's enough damage to take out Lyra. <laughs> so it's just not it's just not even a consideration. Yeah, and right, the pitchforks for this one, you know, people got them out, but it was pretty silly. Yeah. Um, I think, and, and I think people have mostly put yeah. them away at this point. Yeah, so. you know, and good. Yeah. Um, and what people really need to recognize from that scenario is that um, stuff like that happens in m- magic all of the time. Yep. The only difference between this GRV judge call mm-hmm. and another one a couple tables down was that this one was on camera. Yep. That's the only difference. And and that kind of mistake happens all the time. Two experienced players. You mess up, especially when you're like doing a bunch of stuff with Experimental Frenzy. For sure. Yeah. Just, you know, you just kind of lose track and you just get in the rhythm of like going and then, you know, like you just kind of mess up yep. and th- that can happen. I've, um, I've realized after matches that I've played an additional land. I've realized after matches that, like, I cast spells when there was a Damping Sphere in play and, like, had completely forgotten about it and my opponent forgot about it as well. Like, this stuff just happens. It's yeah. There's a, a lot of complicated effects in play and you miss one of them and it happens. Like, yeah. 
Yeah. And, you know, I uh, I did my due diligence of, you know, I watched the clip several times over and over again, and mm-hmm. I looked for all of the signs of, you know, whether or not it could be intentional. And it just it just wasn't. Yeah. The, it just is the lowest EV cheat anybody could ever have run yeah. in that spot. So so that was that bit of drama over the yeah. weekend, I guess. <laughs> just, worth, just worth mentioning. Although sure. I do think that the fervor has died down yeah, appropriately. Yeah, yeah. So. Right. Okay, so why don't we just talk a few more individual decks and, like... I mean, why don't we start with what are you really excited about right now? I, you know, you you teased it a little bit, <laughs> yeah. So I want to hear about this. What have you been playing? Okay, so I don't I don't know if this deck is gonna be good or even like reasonable at all. But uh-huh. I love John Dinosaurs. <laughs> okay, John Dinosaurs is has some of the most broken draws I've seen in Standard in a long time. Hit me with them. So you mulligan to one of your two drops, mm-hmm. and your two drops are your accelerants. And so we're running Marauding Raptor. So the two drops are Marauding Raptor, which mm-hmm. is the new 2-3, right? Yep, yep. And the 1-2 that makes all dinosaurs cost one less. That's Odapec Huntmaster. Odapec Huntmaster. So yeah. we've got four of each of those. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the latest list I've been running, I also have two of the 1-1 uh, that's a 3-3 if you have a dinosaur in play, taps for any mana. Yes, that one I'm not getting the name on, I but lied. I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, I don't know it either. So 10, 10 accelerants. Yeah, okay. One of which can attacks for four on turn three, and the other of which gives your next play haste, so right. can often attack for seven the next turn, which is pretty great. <laughs> That's a lot of damage. Um, That's a lot of damage really quickly. Yeah. The, the deck goldfish is turn four or five every time. Okay. Drover of the Mighty, by Drover the way, is of the, the, Mighty. the mana guy's name. Yeah. Just two of him, because he's kind of the worst one. Yeah, he's pretty um, medium. Yeah. But he's a 3-3. Three, three. He is a 3-3. Three, three. For two. When your deck is working. Yeah. But... We're in London now, so... Right. Your deck it does work. work a lot more. Yeah. And you're running... So so your dinosaur package, the black is mostly for Rotting Registaur. The black is pretty solely for Rotting Registaur and some cyborg cards. Mm-hmm. And you get you get the destroy a green or white creature or planeswalker. I'm actually running cast downs. Oh, okay. That. Okay. Yeah. Cast down is my like removal spell of choice right gotcha. now on the sideboard. Um, and then the other big thing was that there were two out of the top four decks of the recent Mox playoffs were Jun Dinosaurs. Right. I did see that. Yeah. yeah. This deck, you know, I, I started by playing, I believe uh, Martin Yuza was playing a Dinosaurs deck on stream, and it was just a very middle of the road gruel successor with a lot of fours and fives and like add charging monstrosaur kind of as its end game yeah that's not good enough in the standard that's like really bad in the standard right i think that whether or not this deck is actually like has has the legs that it needs to compete in standard it's at least trying to do a thing that is good enough which is like make giant dudes make rotting registrar and cast that with a, like another creature on the same turn on turn three or get Galta in play and give it haste and hit them with it. Like, yeah. these things actually do something. Yeah. Casting four fives and five fives doesn't do anything. Um, so I can completely respect the concept behind this deck. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing with this deck is that um, it's just the deck that most abuses the London Mulligan, from what I've seen. Okay. Because you your goldfishes are insanely fast mm-hmm. and you're putting so much power and toughness on the board in the first three turns yeah. of the game. Um, and and your turn four could potential kill potential is just really high. So that's kind of what I'm enjoying most out of it. It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty gimmicky. Sure. It, that's all it can do. If you're not winning by turn five or six, you're not going to win. Right. You have no um, way to gas yeah. back up If you lose like control that. of the board state ever, it's over. Right. And we're not um, even doing... Marauding Raptor, Ripjaw Raptor shenanigans, right? Is that even no? The... Yeah, okay. We, we are so doing that. right, the four drop slots there. We've got um, four Ripjaw Raptors and four of the Ceratops. Okay. The five drops is uh, four of the the four four that makes it three. three. Regisaur Alpha. Yeah, yeah. Regisaur Alpha. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm running three Galtas. Yeah. And the Galtas, the Rotting Regisaur makes it <laughs> pretty easy to cast. ridiculously <laughs> easy to cast a Galta. So that's hilarious. And you've got eight ways of giving Galta haste. Yeah. And that's um, the deck. Like, yeah, that's, that's the it. whole point. Right. You're just, yeah, you just crunch them. So it's it's really like the most dinosaur deck possible. Yeah. It feels like you're playing a dinosaur deck. Cool. Yeah. So it's just great. <laughs> <laughs> I've been playing it today on ladder, and I'm now, I'm, I think I'm like five wins out from 
making mythic at this point. Mm-hmm. So, you know. So, I mean, if you've just been mostly point. stomping people with it, then you probably don't have really good information for me about what its, like, matchup profile is like. But what do you want to... I probably do. What do you want to play against and what don't you really want to play against with it? The two decks that I would say are bad matchups for the deck are Vampires and Esper. Okay. Everything else feels very favored. Esper makes a lot of sense to me. Wrath of God and just targeted yeah. removal seems Esper really good. Esper has just all of the tools. Yep. And honestly, it is the those black removal spells that, you know, if you're if you're playing as a black deck, it's not going to be great because they're going to have access to stuff like cast down. And, How many um, Veils of Summer can you run in your deck? I The first list that I played had some Veil of Summers, but I actually ended up cutting those. Okay. Just for other stuff, because I... Just make your good matchups really good and... Yeah, and I, I haven't really been playing against a lot of those mm-hmm. decks either. And against vampires, you just don't have time to hold up a mana. Sure. Really. You just want to curve out. So what makes what makes vampires so... Just the fact that they they play fish against you, they put a clock into play, and then they kill your stuff? They... Or? Yeah. And they have a lot of, like, life gain elements that, mm-hmm. you know... Because your only plan in the deck is to get them dead. Yeah. And if they're, like, gaining life and stuff... And then their their Donna Vanguard's really annoying because sometimes it just has like know, six power. Well, right. Sometimes it gets really big and has lifelink with Soren, right? Uh, which is really annoying. And and if they ever like assemble that combo of Soren and a Donna Vanguard, it's really rough. Gotcha. But other times, <laughs> it just like makes routing Regisaurus power four mm-hmm. because they can just block and make it indestructible. So you you're, you're just like not mm. really progressing as much as you want to with gotcha. Regisaurus and stuff. And then each turn they do that, like, they can make up the life later in the game, and you discarding those cards actually, like, legitimately hurts you pretty badly until your hand is empty. Right. So, like, blocking the register does a thing. Yeah. And that's not good. And they're just good at pushing into the late game Mm -hmm. with this deck. Because they're... A lot of what the Dinosaurs deck relies on is, like, taking advantage of the fact that a lot of people are right now in the early game are setting up. Mm-hmm. And then you just kill them during that time. Yeah, and that's what um, that's what vampires is taking advantage yeah. of as well. Right, and but against vampires, you know they don't need to set up. They're they're also doing one very mana. powerful proactive things in the early game. So yep, gotcha. All right, so good matchups. So let's you know let's put all that all yeah. that garbage behind. Good us. matchups. You smush teamer. Okay, it's great. Uh, you just, s- you're just too big. Yeah, you just go faster. Yeah, and they just have to chump block all of their board away pretty mm-hmm. immediately, which is nice. Yeah. You know, sometimes they can squeak into the late game, but if you have a resolve a Galta, it's pretty over yeah. because their plan is to like jump block and Galta mm-hmm. doesn't care about any of that. Right, right. Uh, so I, I really like the team matchup. I really like the Nexus matchup just because you're just so much faster than they are. Oh, it's, wow. It's pretty crazy. Okay. Uh, and then post board, you have a bunch of duresses and thrashing Bronodons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, if you're ever putting on a turn five clock, like plus disruptive piece, it yeah. becomes impossible for Nexus to win. Gotcha. But yeah, I mean, you just you just make Nexus start having a fog as early as possible. It's just kind of the same reason that, you mm-hmm. know, Mono Red's really good against them. Yeah. And Mono Red has the additional reach past it all, but I just think that your your clock is so fast that I'm gotcha. pretty happy with that matchup. Cool. You beat up on Mono Blue because you have four main deck. Ceratops uh, <laughs> <laughs> is in your, in your deck. Yeah. Pretty great. What are the other popular things? Feather is, like, interesting. If they can get Feather plus Reckless Rage, uh, Reckless Rage going, it can be annoying. But you yeah. also, you know, just... You have God yeah. Draws, too. Yeah, you have God Draws, too, for sure. Yeah. And, I mean, Reg- Rotting Registor has six toughness against the deck that has red removal. That tends to be very powerful. Yeah. That's the deck I'm, like, personally most excited about. It's... N- it is a gimmick deck. It is a gimmick deck. Yeah. For sure. And I don't know if... If I am just like having so much fun playing it, and that's why I think it's good, because <laughs> it could be true that it's you know just like too gimmicky, and you just is like not something you want to play in a tournament. But now that I've like gotten down really well the mulligan process with the deck, because mm-hmm. that's pretty much most of the play I think with the deck is that you have to mulligan to a two drop. Mm-hmm. If you're not having a curve like that, you, your deck is your bad. deck. Your deck is never going to win. Mm-hmm. So you have to mulligan really aggressively with it, and some hands are traps. Mm. So if you can, like, figure out... So what are the trap kind of hands? Any hand that has two lands or more, but they're all check lands, mm-hmm. those are all traps. Because you can't play your two-drop on turn two. Gotcha. So then, then your deck can't win. And so you effectively <laughs> yeah. don't have a two-drop. Right. And yeah, yeah, then your deck is trash. So there are some of those that are, you know... And, so, and then, you know, sometimes you just need to mulligan aggressively, mm-hmm. even, like, down to four. 
uh, with this deck can still be like reasonable. Because if you can keep like three lands and a two drop, yeah, or even like three lands and a rotting regisaur, and sometimes it solos it. Yeah, it's just great. Yep, no drawback, just a seven six. Yeah, yeah, no <laughs> cards in my hand anymore. So perfect. Get <laughs> right. Just like we drew it up. Yeah. Cool. I mean, definitely worth trying. Uh, that's what I've been having fun with. The other deck that we've been testing is uh, our Bant variants. Just kind of yeah. like Bant mid-range decks. Uh, you weren't happy with the, the version I mean, that the, you played. Well, and, and I yeah. think, you know, Zach was talking about this. Not to me, but like Zach talked with Jeremy about this. He, he won the Classic with a Bant ramp deck. And I think he told Jeremy, like, don't put too much stock in this particular 75. Like, it's cards that he liked in the deck. But it's not like the tuned version necessarily. Sure. Um, and I, I think the the focus of the testing right now has been pretty much on like we got to get little Teferi back into this format because mm-hmm. there's no reason to just like keep losing to these decks that are full of counter spells and flash cards when this yeah. bonkers card that turns off all of those cards exists. And so, what's the best way to do that? The idea of Bant Ramp does make some amount of sense because just putting Teferi into the deck to fix those sorts of matchups, you know, that that does make a lot of sense to me. Yeah. However, fundamentally, I do have some problems with Teferi in a ramp shell. If you want to use it for its static ability, being completely unable to protect it because you just have so little removal in your deck and you're relying on, like, casting one spell a turn after that is, you know, Llanowar Elves into Teferi is great, but when that's not your start it becomes pretty difficult to keep Teferi on the battlefield. I know what Xan has been doing is just running a bunch of Tamios in there so that you can just keep Teferiing over and over again if yeah. that's what you're trying to do. So that that makes some sense to me. I didn't have that package in the list that I was running, and so that, that does sound a lot, a lot better to me. Yeah. Yeah, I've been pretty happy with it. Mm-hmm. It it feels like the... So the version that we've been playing, which has kind of been like Xan's like tuned-up version... It's a little heavier on Frilled Mystic, Mm -hmm. and the deck seems to play out like a tempo deck most of the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And most of the games that we, like, are, like, like crushing in, like the games that we are in full control, you know, pretty much the whole time, are, like, you know, games where we can set up, uh, you know, Nyssa plus Frilled Mystic backup, Mm -hmm. or, you know... um, Frilled Mystic and then Little Teferi Bounce My Frilled Mystic kind of like stuff. Sure. Um, and that stuff's been fun. And that stuff does fit in really well with the ramp strategy because the downside of Frilled Mystic is that it's four mana. Right. But if you're ramping, that all of a sudden right. is less of an issue. Now it's a turn three play. Yeah. And then that snowballs from there a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, and you're just like, you know, in the if you can get to the late game, you're more likely to be able to do other powerful things mm-hmm. with Frilled Mystic backup and stuff which yeah. can be really nice yeah and the, my favorite thing about frilled mystic has always been that it doesn't get countered by negate and that just yeah. is kind of unreal right. for a counter spell yeah. yeah for sure which is nice i will say though that uh aether gust aether gust cool aether gust has made a huge impact yep. on you can't even um, autumn's veil or summer's veil it yeah it, it dodges everything yeah you you can hit ceratops with it you yep. can it doesn't get veiled it was it was the sole reason of a majority of my losses in the open with nexus <laughs> is that i would set up like all right uh, i've got five mana wilderness reclamation with veil and then they either gust it and i was like well all right well i guess i, guess, I lose i guess that's it <laughs> you know that's a bummer veil does work if it's targeting a permanent for mm-hmm. what it's worth but um right but that's why if they cast wilderness reclamation with a mana up Hit it on the stack. Yeah, and you hit it on the your, stack. You use your Aethergust, for yep. sure. Yep. Yeah. Use your Aethergust right there and just be done with it. Yeah, because you're probably killing them the next turn anyways, so... Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> I mean, Or, you know, the next several turns right. that are all yours. <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> Technically. Yeah. No, I get it, though, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so we're, you know, we're... I think we're pretty early on in the testing process for that. Yeah. yeah I think that's standard. Right, so... So basically, the goals are either... There's two angles that this format seems to be a little soft to right now, which is a good Teferi deck or a, way, a deck that gets them dead. Yeah. And that's that's what, we, that's what you're looking for right yeah. now. If you're into the aggressive decks, I think that both Vampires and Dinosaurs are pretty good. Mm-hmm. Mid-range is... There's a lot, a lot of different mid-range options. I think that the 
black base mid-range decks are all pretty bad right now. Mm-hmm. I don't think Esper's good. I don't think a lot of the other... Is this, like, mostly because of Veil of Summer, do you think? Is that, like, a big part of it, or...? No, I think it's mostly because of Risen Reef. Okay. Is that in the mid-range mirrors, Risen Reef is king. Okay. So... It'll just beat you. If you're trying to play a mid-range deck, and then your matchup against the... Bigger decks are bad because you're playing a mid-range deck, and then also the other mid-range decks is bad. Gotcha. I just don't like your positioning. Okay. So I think that if you want to be playing mid-range, you have to be blue-green. I think most people have picked up on because Temple of Mystery has been the number one land that I've played against. <laughs> just game every one, turn one is Temple yeah. of Mystery. It's just like, oh, it's either Forest Land or Elf, or you know, some Forest Variant Land or Elf, mm-hmm. or Temple of Mystery. I'm like every time. <laughs> so I think that if you if you're trying to metagame, definitely make sure that the, you're good against blue green strategies because mm-hmm. blue green strategies are everywhere. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean that makes sense, and mm-hmm. I mean they do take. Being good against a Risen Reef deck doesn't necessarily mean that you're good against a Wilderness Reclamation-based Nexus deck. So, True. And those are both probably going to continue being relatively present in the metagame. I mean, we know how to shut down Nexus. We've done it before. But this metagame is getting attacked from a bunch of different, very powerful angles. And I think it's really difficult to just be like, all right, I'm running to fairies and Narsets and beating this wilderness reclamation deck that way because that is not very good when your opponent is casting risen reef against you yeah so yeah so that's uh, a lot of standard yeah we do have two other formats that we're playing next weekend though <laughs> that's true you're gonna be playing modern yeah right? i mean i'm almost certainly just gonna play phoenix excellent uh, choice i think it's totally fine it does yeah. probably lose a little bit because the london mulligan rule does not favor the all cantrip deck where all of your cards do exactly the same thing but it does help you get that turn two thing in the ice a little more often, I guess. So I don't know if it will help that because I think that you're just you never not going to be mulliganing. Yeah, I mean, you just never mulligan yeah. with the deck. But, you know, I'll mulligan, I'll nudge up my mulligan percentage a little bit higher from like 8% to 10% of the time or something yeah. super minimal like that. But yeah, we will see. I'm not totally sure like where the 75 is supposed to be at right now remarkably and a little bit terrifyingly there were zero is it phoenix decks in any of the listed decks from the modern challenge this past weekend huh. i've never seen that since is that it phoenix is became a deck yeah so that's really scary i mean you know definitely i think now is a good time to just like you know play some leagues with it and yep. see if you are just getting crushed all the time that's the plan yeah we have seen some pretty interesting stuff seen my favorite thing that i've seen is that lightning skeletal is a real card <laughs> yeah yeah mostly because it's so good with unearth yes um one mana for six damage and mine rot you is a real good deal it's a good rate yeah and so you know this is there's just like another category of decks that's making good use out of faithless looting uh, amazing how that seems to happen strange but yeah like, i don't know i would have never thought <laughs> aggressively tilted black red decks that aren't really hollow one decks anymore but have other whether they have like seasoned pyromancer but these like unearth packages really help do some stuff and then they get they have ways of making up the card disadvantage from faithless looting and they also just like hit really hard um, so that's an interesting kind of sweet category of deck that if I had more than a couple of days to prepare this tournament, I'd probably be looking into. Sure. I'm just going to try to adapt Phoenix to whatever is going on, make sure that my card choices are good. I don't, you know, the question is like, how many surgicals do we need anymore? How many lava darts can we afford to run? One of the things that I learned from our build during Hogak week or okay. whatever is there really is a number of minimum cantrips minimum cards that draw a card in your deck and i think we didn't hit that by once you have like three main deck surgicals and lava darts and arias of flame and your lightning bolts you i think we were short like two cards that said draw a card on it because it was just way too easy to run dry with an aria of flame yeah Um, i could see that for sure and so i just want to like keep that number in mind while whenever i'm working on a 60 for for phoenix so it's always fun when you get to have like solidified lessons and stuff like that so that's good yeah i mean i don't want to like calcify that in my brain because that number might change or whatever but i think given running aria in the deck yeah you know you want to be able to chain just keep chaining yeah legacy are you playing so are you gonna play standard this weekend okay i'm on standard okay who's your legacy seat 
uh, Bob Wong. Oh, okay, cool, yeah. cool. Any idea what Bob is working on right now? Not to you know steal any Bob Wong secrets, but uh, from from what I remember, he had like a list of like five or six archetypes that he was really into. Mm-hmm. He was into the graveyard decks. Okay. He was into anything with Renin and Six in it, mm-hmm. and then Chalice of the Void decks. Where like those were like the three like big pillars okay. that he. It's a very like rock on. paper scissors sort of setup. Yeah, pillars. and I think that that is legacy right now. You've got your Delver strategies, yep. but pretty much all of the Delver strategies have like inbred, from what I can tell, because they're all playing Ren and Six mm-hmm. because because Ren and Six and Wasteland is absolutely insane. Yep. Match made in heaven. Yep. So, and I think that the latest thing that he's been on has been some four color. Ren and Six, Delvery's mm-hmm. thing. But Hogak was definitely something that was tested. Just regular Dredge as well was something that was thought about. So. Yeah, that's... I think I am finally going to pull the trigger on owning a Legacy deck, just so that when whenever I wash out of one of these team opens, I can walk <laughs> over to the Legacy Classic and just register a deck. So I yeah. think I'm going to buy a couple of Badlands, and I'm going to build Legacy Hogak. So yeah. these like altars and stuff that I have yeah, don't no. completely go to waste. I, I mean, you know, you have most of Hogak already, so that I think that can just do it. You know, I have the the like five hundred dollars of Hogak, and then I need to spend a thousand dollars on bad dual lands, and <laughs> you know, we'll be fine. Yeah, right. Yeah, it'll be great. <laughs> just the worst, the, the worst set of like two or three different dual lands. Yeah, gotta get a scrub land in there, yep. and then some bad lands. It's good because the names of these duels tell them tell you just how bad they are in yeah. Legacy. Yeah. So it's really helpful. Right. No, but I, I do think that Hogak is a contender. Absolutely. Yeah. In Legacy. And the stuff, like the deck was always fun to play. It yeah. just was a shame because it was so much better and ruined the format. Right, so you right, felt right. guilty playing it. Yeah. But playing it in Legacy where people are also doing bonkers things for zero and one mana back to you, it's totally reasonable. So, All right. Any other modern slash Legacy thoughts? So your team is you, Bob Wong, and, and Lee. Lee McLeod. And Lee, that's right. That's yeah. right. This is That is a dope team. I'm very excited. Cool. Yeah. Me, Lee, and Bob, we're going to crush it, I'm sure. I have every confidence <laughs> that that's going to happen. Uh, yeah, my teammates are broken, so, yeah. I mean, you know, it'll be easy. <laughs> yeah, I've, you know, I've teamed with Lee a couple of times, and while, you know, my individual record has been fine in the events, and, like, nobody has, like, done really badly, like, we've just had, like, such bad beats in every team tournament we've played in that... I just feel like a little bit of an albatross at this point, so... Oh, no. <laughs> so yeah. I, I will be hanging around Jeremy's neck this weekend. Great. Just really, yeah, really making him unlucky as hell. <laughs> oh, no. We'll see how that goes. Should we do a Patreon question? Okay, so it's by uh, Prodigal Engineer. They ask, how do you use data in your testing process and decisions to play decks, including hedging as a team strategy? So one of the big things that we do, um, and this was kind of brought to the team by Evan Whitehouse, is that we have a a spreadsheet that we put in our estimated win percentages where we have a, the spreadsheet is a list of all of the archetypes in a format. So it's easiest for standard. So we have like all of our major archetypes listed out. Mm-hmm. And then we put in, those archetypes expected win percentages against the other major archetypes. Mm -hmm. So what we end up with is, so we go through for, you know, say we're doing like mono blue. So we go, okay, what is mono blue's win percentage against feather? We put that in. What is its win percentage against, you know, nexus? We put that in. Mm -hmm. And then eventually we have the whole spreadsheet filled out with win percentages against um, all of the decks in the format. And, then the spreadsheet calculates for us our expected win percentage against the field at large. Yep. Because we also factor in the metagame percentages. Metagame percentages. Yeah. Right. So if you're so in theory, that should be like those calculated percentages if we're in the right ballpark for our like individual matchup like breakdowns. Mm-hmm. Gives us like a good view into which decks are best positioned against the field. Mm-hmm. Some of the members put more stock into this than others. Because a lot of it is, you know, estimation on our part. Mm-hmm. This isn't, we're not putting in real data. Because you can't this. know what the wind, yeah. because it changes with three sideboard slots and, and stuff like that. Right. And also, no sample size we could reasonably come to right. in a week would be like reliable. Mm-hmm. So, but we, we do put a lot of stock into our understanding of the matchups. Mm-hmm. So if I'm telling you that I feel like, Mono Blue is like a 65% favorite against Nexus. That's based on a lot of like of my understanding of the matchup, mm-hmm. you know, and that's not coming from any raw data. 
we just don't have access to that. Yeah. So that that is one of the like you know tools that we use to to calculate those things, and typically we use that kind of near the end of our testing week to kind of be the tiebreaker between the several decks that we feel most comfortable with leading up to the tournament. Mm-hmm. And what we typically find is that, and probably a lot of this comes from our own inherent bias, because you know once we have decided which decks that we like those decks are pretty much always the decks that have the highest expected win percentage against the field. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of that might come from... The fact that you're assigning their win percentages yeah. against other decks. Right. You like the decks, so you... I, I think this deck is good against Feather, and I think this right. deck is good against yeah. Risen Reef or yeah. whatever. Yeah. But, you know, typically the decks that we end up liking are the decks that are doing well. Yeah, So I think that all balances out. But, but that it's, is, it's a nice check on your... You know, you've been playing it, you've been winning with it, but then if you go, oh, wait, but, like, it really doesn't... I just... I guess I haven't been playing against these two decks that we expect to make up, like, a solid percentage of the field, and it's really bad against those. Right. So it helps catch your... Yeah. So that's that's definitely a good tool that we have access to. And and most of what it does, though, is it sparks a lot of conversation. Mm -hmm. Because we typically try to get everybody in the team in on really discussing these matchup win percentages... So we, you know, we don't want one player like taking over for Mono Blue and all they've been playing is Mono Blue. You know, we want everybody's input to that yeah. stuff. So those discussions that come out of like really looking at the stuff is is typically really helpful for in, sure. in figuring out what those win percentages yeah. are in different matchups. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And then the second part of the question uh, about hedging as a team strategy. I, I mean, I don't know if <laughs> that is really connected to the use of data, but that you know, with a team tournament coming up. Um, maybe I just don't really understand the question. It might be in reference to how like members of Lotus Box end up on a variety of decks mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Oh, I see. Okay, that's like ha- that's I, how I interpreted it. In a in an ideal world, you come up with the deck that has the highest win percentage, and then you just all run it because that gives you the yeah. best. Yeah. Right. While that would be definitely like the best case scenario, I guess in theory, it's just not how it really works in reality because sometimes we figure out that this one deck is the best deck, but Maybe like one of the team members didn't test at all with it, and then mm-hmm. when they do try to play it, like the day before, they feel pretty uncomfortable with it, and they're just not willing to pull the trigger. And not everybody's win percentage with that deck is the win percentage of the deck. Yeah. If, if Nexus is at fifty eight percent and Esper is at fifty six percent, then John Rossum should play Esper. Right. Like yes, and right exactly, and that kind of thing happens a lot where everybody does have their own tendencies and like strategies that they understand more than mm-hmm. than other stuff and and it really is up to each individual individual member to decide what deck they think that is going to give them the best yeah win percentage against the field definitely yeah because there's a lot of like debate that happens all the time and you know sometimes we have conflicting views of certain like things and there's a lot of opinions being thrown around and for me personally I do my best to make sure that I have access to all of that information because when people are making like making arguments for their case and stuff, it does like bring up a lot of good discussion and everything. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I like to use all of the information to personally make the best decision I can make given all of that context. Yeah, I'm never going to be like, oh, all right, everybody else on the team is playing this deck, so I have to. I'm always going to be like, and this is like definitely something that I did with playing bant mass manipulation at the invitational is that everybody was it was between esper or bant mass and there were a lot of heated arguments on both sides of that when i made my decision i was like all right i've heard all of the perspectives Mm -hmm. and i know that for me it's just going to be better if i play this mass manipulation deck so i you know i try to do that in for every tournament is that you know everybody has a lot of opinions and and they're throwing things around but it's better definitely to make sure that you're making the decision that works best for you and not forcing somebody else to make that decision. <laughs> That's yeah. like an b- important thing that, you know, sometimes we struggle with because sometimes we are very adamant that the decision that we end up making is the best decision. And everybody um, wants everybody else on their team to do well. Exactly. You and that to is, do well. that is where it fundamentally comes from mm-hmm. is that we're all really trying to look out for each other. Yeah. Right. So we're like, yo, you can't play that deck. That deck's bad. You got to play this deck or whatever. Mm-hmm. While you can definitely express that it's, you know, it's important for us to make sure that we're, respecting you know. each other yeah. yeah yeah i mean nobody on the team is picking a deck at random you know nobody is right like yeah. a complete idiot just like 
I think this deck is good, but I don't have any reason for it. Like, yeah. you're picking a deck for a reason. Right. And I, um, you know, I'm today I'm going to be proposing John Dinosaurs to the team. I'm going to try to get Zan to play it mm-hmm. and see what they think about it. I, I might end up like wanting to play it at this team tournament. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be a risky thing for me because it's like not really a solidified deck. And, you know, a lot of people think it's a meme. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I do believe that it's got legs. And it is a gimmicky deck, but I think just think that, like, you know, it's a gimmicky deck in the same way that Dredge is a gimmicky deck. I think, but it, it just might be super powerful. The gimmick might be really good. Yep. Yep. That's all it takes. Cool. Well, thank you for that question. I don't really have much else to talk about today, unless you have anything in particular. I think we covered a lot of good stuff. I think we did, too. Yeah. So, great. Normal episode after a little while of not normal episodes. It's nice. Really, really appreciate everybody who showed up to watch us on stream. If you are listening to this at home on a podcast app or whatever, we also really appreciate you. Uh, But if you would like to stop by Tuesdays at 7.30 Eastern Standard Time, we'll be on twitch.tv slash collinsmullen. But honestly, any way you want to listen to us is fantastic. Really appreciate it. Yep. If you want to give us some support, you can head over to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. Check out all the new stuff. I will be posting pictures of the swag as we get it in and developed and start sending it out. So that should be pretty cool. Or you can go straight to our website, mtggrindcast.com. We've got links to our Patreon there. Also links to Collins' coaching services. Find us on social media. I'm tweeting from at ccr underscore grindcast. The podcast Twitter is at mtg underscore grindcast. Collins is also on Twitter at Collins Mullen. And thanks so much for hanging out and have a great week. Peace.